Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the past uh, several weeks in the letter to the Galatians, uh, Paul's letter to the churches uh, in what would be modern-day southern Turkey, uh, known at the time as Galatia. And the issues that he is speaking into in this ch- these churches that he helped to establish about three years prior is to bring them back to the message of God's grace that he had announced there. You may remember, if you've been with us over these past few weeks, that the problem that crept in to the Galatian churches was that this group that was largely made up of Gentile, that is, non-Jewish converts to Christianity, had begun their life by grace, and then some other teachers had come into the church after Paul and were essentially telling them, no, no, in order to be Christians, you have to become Jews first. You have to be circumcised and keeping uh, the law of the Old Testament You have to start eating kosher and observing the Jewish dietary commandments. In other words, that there were the commandments of the Torah, of the law, that you had to keep before you could gain access to God's grace. If you're here last week with us, you remember that Paul brought into that an example of a meal that he had with the apostle Peter, one of the fellow pillars of the early church, where he had to rebuke Peter because he refused to eat with Gentiles. He viewed them as both ethnically, morally, and culturally inferior to him. And so we talked last week about some of the things that divide us when we find our pride, when we find our identity and our morality or in our culture or in our ethnicity. And so Paul uh, is developing on from that argument uh, in our passage today. If you are willing and able, would you turn to Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15, and would you stand with us for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I, were, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For the, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I, live, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks so much, Haley. Uh, You can be seated. You know, one of the great human accomplishments, one of the great uh, human physical conquests over nature uh, is to climb Mount Everest. 
right? It's something that many people try to do. Uh, just this past year, in 2019 already, 11 people have died trying to climb Mount Everest. Uh, the, the way that the weather works as you, uh, as you climb Everest is if you don't hit it at exactly the right moment to get up and then get back down, you get caught in all kinds of uh, bad weather. Just living at that altitude, going to that altitude has these terrible effects on your body uh, so that sometimes you get there, you get back, you think you're fine, and then you die. No thanks. But it is something that drives uh, hundreds of people to attempt to make this conquest. Some of you may have heard about 2016, there was an Indian couple, Dinesh and Tarek Shawi Rathod, were the first Indian couple to ever climb Mount Everest. Uh, if you were in India at the time, which I assume most of you were not, you would have seen uh, their picture on the papers. You would have seen them giving press conferences. They, uh, they started a media tour to talk about uh, the Rathods uh, being the first couple to summit Mount Everest. There were pictures of them with the Indian flag on the top of Mount Everest. And the problem was uh, that the Rathods did not climb Mount Everest. Uh, they tried to climb Mount Everest. They went through the Nepal side to try to climb Mount Everest, but they weren't able to do it. Uh, but they figured, given the modern advances in Photoshop, uh, we don't actually have, you know, most of the climbing is for the selfie, right? It's for the picture at the top to be the first of your, of your nation to do it as a couple. And so they said, hey, we didn't make it, but what does it matter? Nobody, nobody else will know, so we'll just we'll put our picture out there, we'll have a press conference, we'll go on a media tour, we'll sign a book deal. But the problem is that the climbing community, uh, those people who had summited Mount Everest uh, at the time, uh, as you might imagine, were not too thrilled with a couple going around and telling everybody that they had climbed Mount Everest. And so people who had been to the top were able to look at the angle of the sun and the time and look at the climbing logs of the, the companies that help people summit, and they go, these people did not climb Mount Everest. And so they were outed as giant frauds. Imagine the outrage you would feel if you were one of these people who had dedicated your entire life to climbing mountains, to being in the peak physical shape, for knowing the ins and outs of mountaineering, and then at the no pun intended, at the summit of your life, you made it to the top. And then here comes these other people saying, yeah, we did it too, look at our picture. Right? There would be a righteous sense of indignation. Right? I've prepared my entire life to get to the top of this mountain. And then you waltz in here with a little bit of Photoshop and expect to be treated as though you belong among the elite mountain climbers of the world. There must have been something like that kind of feeling that was going on inside of Peter and inside of his fellow Jewish Christians, when all of a sudden their church, their community is overrun by these Gentiles, Peter had to be thinking, I have spent my entire life climbing this mountain. I was circumcised as a child. I've never eaten a pork chop in my life. I've eaten kosher my entire life. I've, I've avoided temptation. I've trained my body. I have lived my life climbing this spiritual mountain. And then you Gentiles waltz in here, having spent your entire life worshiping strange pagan gods, sacrificing your children to them, eating anything and everything you see fit, getting rich off of my people. And you expect me to sit down at the dinner table and eat a meal with you. You expect me to worship with you on a Sunday morning. 
You expect me even to admit you as a leader in the church and to follow you. No thanks, you didn't climb the mountain. You haven't worked like I've worked. You haven't attained to what I've attained. Do you expect me to accept you as though you belong here? And of course, Paul's answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, you belong here. Because the good news of the gospel means this, that God is not interested in your spiritual mountain climbing. God is not in the business of rewarding the people who make it to the top, no matter how faithful their climb. That God does let, the scandal of grace is that, yes, they do get to waltz in here. The thief on the cross who who ran from God and sinned against him his entire life until at the last minute, saying, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus says, okay, I'll see you there. Right? Jesus tells the story of the the prodigal son, the son who wanders off and squanders his father's inheritance and then gets welcomed back with a party while the older son fumes in anger. And he says, yes, that's the kind of God I am that welcomes back those who come waltzing in here. Because uh, this, the gospel, requires a total recalibration of how we think about who belongs, about how we think about who's earned it and who's worthy. And to use Paul's language here, who's righteous? Who's righteous? And so this morning out of this passage, we want to look at righteousness, Uh, the hunger for righteousness, the gift of righteousness, and then what it means to live out of righteousness. Paul uses this word a number of times here. He's going to go on to use it uh, more uh, in the book of Galatians. It comes up first in your English translation in verse 15, uh, what's what's translated here, justified. Uh, Justified, righteousness, these come out of the same Greek root word, dikaio. And it simply means this, that to be justified, to be righteous, is to be acknowledged as someone who is in the right. Right? It's to be vindicated. In a legal uh, standpoint, it means to be acquitted in a court of law. More broadly, it might just mean to be someone who's in good standing in your community, right? Someone who people look at and go, yeah, that's a, that's a good person. That's a, that's a righteous dude. That's a, that, that person is in the right. And friends, we all long, uh, we all live out of this desire to be in good standing. This desire to be a good person, this desire to be counted in the right. We live uh, for a kind of righteousness. We live to prove ourselves worthy, worthy of love, worthy of admiration, worthy of salvation. We want to be in the right. I love the quote uh, from Chariots of Fire, uh, the classic movie, where one of the characters, uh, uh, one who runs the 100 meters, As he prepares for the Olympics, he describes what's driven him to this point. And he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. I have the 10 seconds of a 100-meter dash to justify my entire existence in the world. Now, uh, if you're like me, uh, I don't justify my existence by my ability to run 100 meters, uh, or else I would live a horribly unjustified existence, (laughs) right? But how many of us think, I've got the 18 years that my children are at home to justify my existence as a parent, or to think I've got my 40 to 50 years of my career to get as far ahead as I can to justify my existence to my profession, 
Or I've got the years of my marriage to justify myself as a good husband or as a good wife. You know, we talked earlier about climbing Mount Everest. Uh, one of the reasons, we said there have been 11 deaths this year on Mount Everest. The reason uh, they think for that, what is a spike in the deaths on Mount Everest, is that more and more people every year are trying to climb Mount Everest, right? Uh, that This year, there have been something like 400 permits that have been granted to try to climb Mount Everest, when before they might only give 10, 12 a year. Uh, whereas before, people had to train for much of their lives to try to attempt to climb Mount Everest. Nowadays, if you have enough money, uh, you can try to climb Mount Everest. And so what happens is, is you have all of these people trying to get up to the top of Mount Everest for their selfie, is that they get up there, they do their picture, they do their thing, and then the way back down, there's a, there's a place where it gets too hard for many people to pass, and so people get stuck up there, right? That there is this drive. What is driving 400 people a year to risk their life to try to climb Mount Everest? It's that we do have this insatiable desire to prove that we're awesome, right? To prove that we are just a little bit better than all of those other people who didn't try, who didn't climb, right? Each one of us is on this self-justification project. We find a way to look at the world and to keep score such that we come out on the winning end and our awesomeness is proven. One place that this plagues me on a daily basis in my life um, is through this watch. Uh, some, of, some of you have heard me talk about this before if you've been in the City Rescue Mission Chapel with me. Um, but I got an Apple Watch not too long ago, which I thought was great. This is, this is awesome. It's going to help me. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to track my calories and the numbers of steps that I take and whether I stand enough or sit too much during my day. This is going to be awesome. This is really going to help me. But what happens over time is that as I try to get my steps in, as I try to burn enough calories during the day, is that it becomes a way to find out whether I did good that day or did bad that day, right? Did I, did I burn enough calories this day in order to eat my dinner tonight, right? Did I, did it, if I didn't get enough steps in or burn enough calories, I feel bad about myself. If I set a new record for the most calories burned, I feel awesome about myself, right? Haley has one too, so we can compare against each other. <laughs> Right? Who ran further? Always Haley. Who burned more calories? Usually me, because I'm bigger. Um, but we, like, we can keep track of these things, because every marriage needs new ways to compete. And so you get this scorecard that comes beeping in on your watch on a daily basis. Right? When I exercised, the other day I exercised and forgot to track my workout on my watch. I left it at home. And it felt like I had not exercised. It felt like, why did I, why did I run those miles? Did it even, did it even count? In the grand scheme of things, one thing that your watch does for you is that uh, periodically um, you, you do enough and it gives you a badge, right? It gives you, like, yeah, like you're a Boy Scout. It gives you a badge. Congratulations, you went on a swim today or you did a, this kind of workout for the first time. And so I collect badges that do not exist, right? This is not a, this is not a thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's just something your watch tells you. And I remember uh, one day, these are first world problems. I remember uh, one day I had a new operating system come in on my watch. And while it was updating, I lost all of my badges. I know. <laughs> it was an existential crisis of the first order. How do I know? How do I know that, I'm a, that I did well? How do I know that I'm fit, that I exercise, that I do these things? 
right? Friends, there is something in us that, that attaches our hearts to ways to keep score. You may think that the watch thing is the most ridiculous project in the world, and I would be prone to agree with you. But for others, it's different things for each of us, right? It might be grades in school. It might be raises at work, right? It might be the admiration of your neighbors. It might be that every time that neighbor walks by and says, hey, your yard looks nice today, you check up a little badge to your heart, right? It might be that some, every time somebody tells you, you know what, I had your kids in children's church today and they were so well-behaved, that that's your little shot to go, mm-hmm, yep, pin another badge on my heart. Right, that we are scorekeeping animals uh, at our very roots. And so in that way, we can look on Peter and these Jewish Christians uh, with some sympathy. Right, That could not shake their commitment to scorekeeping. That could not shake their sense of moral and spiritual superiority. This is what was at the heart of Peter segregating himself from the Gentiles. And Paul here is, I think, lovingly saying to Peter, look, Peter, we all know, you and I both, both of them were, were raised as, as Jews. Does you and I both know that we're not justified by the law? Right? You and I both know that we're not judged righteous because of how good or bad we are, because of circumcision or our dietary fitness. Right? We all know that. But what's happening is that what you know, what you believe, hasn't yet worked its way into your heart, into the way that you live, into the way that you relate. Look at how he starts in verse 15, talking, uh, talking here on the heels of his conversation with Peter. He says, we ourselves are by Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, which if you could put that in sarcastic quotes, you should, right? We know that we're good, we're, we're, we're born Jews, we're not like those Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified, is not made right by works of the law, by keeping the Torah, by being circumcised, by observing the right laws, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He's reminding Peter of what he already knows, right? Peter, look, you left that old way of life to join yourself to Jesus by faith. You know that no one can be justified by their keeping of the law. He goes on in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified, to be made right in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? What we think is going on here is that some of the critics of Paul were saying that by eating with Gentiles, by doing his life with non-Jews, that they were sinning, and by claiming that Jesus said it was okay, that they were making Jesus to be a sinner. And so he's saying here, Peter, is our, is our living life with these Gentiles, is this not only making us sinners, but making Jesus himself a sinner? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, if I tore down, as Paul says elsewhere, the boundary marker, the wall between Jew and Gentile, if I rebuild the law that he's torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's saying to Peter, look, look, we've got what you believed already, what you've already believed to come into the faith, you have to work into your heart, into your relationships, into the way that you do your life. You've got to let go of the scorekeeping. You've got to let go of the mountain climbing because it's killing you and it's wounding the people, right? You're offending the brothers and sisters that you ought to be breaking bread with, but instead you're looking down on. 
You've got to let go this project of building your own righteousness. And so, friends, where do you seek justification? Where do you chase after righteousness? Where do you go to try to prove the worth of your existence? That's a question uh, that only you can answer. You know your life better than I know your life. And it'd be easy on one level to say, you know what, This this is ridiculous. To be a healthy person, you should let go. You should let go of the search after righteousness. You should let go out of that desire to prove yourself to be in the right. And yet Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Right? Jesus is saying that there's something in the hunger itself that is right. There's something in the hunger to be vindicated, to know that you're in right standing, to know that you belong and that you're worthy. There's something in that hunger that is good. Blessed are those who hunger after a righteousness. Now, this is on the heels of when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? So, blessed are those who hunger after righteousness, but also who recognize that it's something that they can't attain. Recognize that it's something they can't earn or produce or manufacture on their own. So, if righteousness is something that we hunger for, but something that we can't attain, where do we get it? And so we want to look at the gift of righteousness that Paul talks about here. Verse 15, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified, a person is not made righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? What he's saying is that righteousness, the, the longing that we have to be in the right, is not something that's within our grasp to earn on our own, but something that we take hold of as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Right, that righteousness isn't something that we earn, it's something that we're given. Perhaps the most influential commentary ever written uh, in the history of the Christian church is Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. Right, you may know Martin Luther uh, as uh, essentially one of the founders, the catalyst behind the Protestant Reformation. Luther, uh, prior to uh, that revelation and prior to that Reformation, uh, was a monk someone who had devoted himself entirely to the pursuit of the spiritual life, someone who had disciplined his body and his soul, somebody who among the monks in his abbey was among the hardest workers, was among the most obsessed with advancing in the spiritual life. He says that he was haunted by the phrase, the righteousness of God, a phrase that Paul uses over and over and over again. He says that that phrase haunted him because to him it only meant the righteousness that God demanded, right? God himself is righteous. He's entirely without sin, entirely holy, and his righteousness is what he demands out of human beings. Far from being good news, this righteousness of God was something that kept him up at night, something that fueled a nearly psychotic and neurotic obsession with improving himself spiritually. He says at some place that he begins studying uh, the Bible, especially Paul. He says at one point that he beats at Paul stubbornly in order to understand what he means by the righteousness of God. And here is how the, the, the insight that Luther gained that changed his life and that ultimately changed the entire Christian church. And I quote, Christian righteousness is the greatest righteousness. Because God puts it on us without our lifting a finger. 
It has nothing to do with what we do or how hard we work, but it is given to us and we do nothing for it. We call it a passive righteousness because we don't have to work for it. With this free righteousness, we don't do anything. We don't give anything to God, but we receive and allow someone else to do it. That's why we call it passive righteousness. This passive righteousness is a mystery that someone, apart from the knowledge of Jesus, can't understand. As a matter of fact, Christians themselves don't completely understand it and don't take advantage of it when they're tempted. So we have to constantly teach it over and over and over again to others and repeat it to ourselves. Because if we don't understand it and have it in our hearts, we will be defeated by our enemy and will be totally depressed because there is nothing that gives us peace like this passive righteousness. Luther goes on to call, he says, this passive righteousness, this righteousness that we receive as a gift, As Paul says here, we receive it by faith in Christ. He says we receive it in the same way that the grass receives the rain. Right? What does the grass do to earn the rain? Absolutely nothing. But it opens up and receives what's given to it as a gift by its creator. It's a passive righteousness. Paul describes it also as an exchange. Right? That the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus... His perfect life is given to us as though we had earned it, as though we were that good, that righteous, that spotless, that it's laid onto us and we receive it passively, not something that we receive. This is why the theologian T.F. Torrance says this. He says that this means that we are saved not only by the death of Jesus, but he, so he not only died for us, but that he lived his whole life for us. That his perfect life, his perfect love, his love of neighbor, his love of God, his obedience and temptation, all of that is laid on us as though it were our own. I'd like you to do a mental exercise with me to turn on your imagination. Imagine that all of us are going to climb Mount Everest. This isn't uh, the literal Mount Everest, but this is the spiritual Mount Everest. Each one of us is going out to try to climb the mountain, to reach the height, to finish the race, and to get the picture of ourselves crowned with glory at the top of the mountain. And we look around, listen, we're honest, we know not everybody's going to make it to the top. And so you look around and you start comparing yourself. All right, look, I may not be in great shape, but I'm going to beat her and I'm going to beat him. Right? I'm going, to, I'm going to make it further up the mountain than most. But then you look down the line and you see Jesus there about to climb the mountain. He's about to climb this spiritual mountain with us. And you learn that it doesn't matter whether you beat anybody else up the mountain. What matters is that you beat Jesus up the spiritual mountain because that is the standard of God's law. The standards of God's law isn't good enough, right? It's not wheezing your way up the mountain or getting medevaced out, right? The standard of God's law is perfect and perpetual obedience. It means climbing the spiritual mountain perfectly, not missing a step, not getting lost, not not meandering, not falling through the ice, but a perfect race to the top of the mountain. So we all set out up, up Mount Everest. And Jesus takes off like Usain Bolt running the 100 meters, 
He is flying up Mount Everest. He is there before you get 10 steps in. He's up at the top. You can't even see him anymore. And you start wheezing your way up the mountain, right? A few feet in, you realize, oh man, I didn't dress appropriately for this. I'm cold. Uh, you, start, you start wheezing. You start getting lost. You, you, you meander off. At one point, you think you're, you've entered into China. You've left, the, you've left the road. Somebody comes. Your Sherpa comes, corrects you, gets you back on track. You pass out somewhere along the way. When you come to, you learn Jesus made it to the top. You, of course, uh, didn't get very far up the spiritual Mount Everest. And yet, uh, when Jesus, the new world record holder in climbing spiritual Mount Everest, when he's on his press tour, uh, when he is on all the papers, when he's in the Guinness Book of World Records, he starts showing his picture of him on the top of Mount Everest, and there you are, smiling right alongside him. When he's on the top of Mount Everest and doing his interviews, he says, I don't know, you got to listen to Dave. When Dave and I climbed Mount Everest, you wouldn't believe what it was like. When Dave and I were on our way up the mountain, he was with me every step of the way. When Dave and I were at the top, I couldn't believe how proud I was of him when he made it there. Because the good news of the gospel is that you are in Christ in such a way that when he climbs the mountain, he, you climb it in him and with him. That his success is your success. That your floundering uh, isn't counted against you. That your sputtering down the trail uh, doesn't end in your death. But it ends with you being crowned with Christ as though you were just as fit, just as loving, just as obedient, just as perfect in the Father as he ever was. You climb in Christ to heights that you could never attain. To be treated as though you were in Christ in his life, in his obedience, in his love, and in his death. Calls us into a new life, and so we want to look at the life of righteousness here. I love, love, love the words that Paul uses. Maybe the greatest summary in all of Paul's writing of the gospel. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? Union with Christ. Listen to what Paul says. I died with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. So the life that I live in the flesh, it's no longer me living, but the resurrected life of Christ beating in me and living through me, joined to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. I have been crucified with Christ. There's something in us that to come to faith in Christ, there's something in us that has to die. There's something in us that, that gets nailed to the cross and that dies there with Christ. What is it? What is it in us that has to die? Right? Because we know that, that we continue to live. Right? You woke up this morning or you wouldn't be here. Right? Every one of us continues on in a life. But Paul says that in him, there's something he can say, past tense, I have been crucified with Christ. I believe that what Paul's doing, remember earlier in Galatians, he narrates his life story. He narrates his conversion for the Galatians. And remember, he says of his life that he was advancing in his religion beyond many of his own age, that he was zealous for the Jewish religion. He was zealous to persecute Christians. And what Paul's saying is that that me has died. Right, that the, the Paul that was out to live by the law, to prove his righteousness, to attain, to beat his, his peers, that that me has been put to death. 
That me no longer lives. I've died to that way of life. And that each one of us in coming to faith in Christ has to die to our old identities, to our old way of proving ourselves, to our old way of earning our worthiness, our own way of making ourselves feel good at the expense of others, of making our own selves feel more worthy than our neighbors. That in each one of us, that piece of us has to die. Our sinful quest to build an identity on our own apart from God, dies once and for all with Christ. Now, there's other parts in Paul where he acknowledges that what seems really cut and dry here, I have been crucified with Christ. There's places in Paul where he he lets us in on the fact that it's not necessarily been that clean and easy, right? That he still wants to do things that he doesn't do, that sometimes he's battling against temptation, right? I I, Believe it or not, uh, this, this passage here, uh, these verses in Galatians uh, were my these. If you look at my senior year yearbook, which I, you are not invited to do, but if you were to look at my senior year yearbook, right underneath my glamour shot, right now that's not what you call it, uh, but me in a tux there, my senior year, is this quote: "I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me." And on the one hand, I can look back at young Dave and say, "Man, that is awesome." That is uh, the passion and the fruit of, a, of a, a relatively recent life in Christ, uh, remarking and attaching myself to that reality of feeling like my entire life's been turned around. But I had no idea as an 18-year-old uh, that the part of me that I thought was crucified with Christ would spend the next 20-plus years uh, trying to dominate my life. Right? That old self-righteousness, those old lusts, those old desires, that what Paul calls elsewhere the old man, right? our old identities, they've been crucified, they've been nailed to the cross, and yet we have to continue to live in that work of, of, of accounting them dead, of working to put them to death, as Paul will say elsewhere. They're already dead, and so you've got to keep killing it. You've got to keep reminding yourself, that's not who I am. That me has been crucified with Christ. And now Christ lives in me, right? That Christ lives his new resurrection life by his spirit in us. That he's forming his own character in our lives. So that over time, our lives come more closely to reflect his life. His life of love, his life of generosity, his life of humility, his life of obedience. And that all of that takes place in us as we learn to account it to be true of us. I love uh, John Wesley, who's the, the founder of the Methodist Church. Part of his coming to faith was his reading of Luther's commentary on Galatians. Right? So we're in Galatians. We've talked about how, how Luther read Galatians. And now Wesley comes along and is reading Luther's commentary on Galatians. And he comes to faith in Christ through Luther's commentary. And he gets to these verses in Galatians where Paul says, The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wesley writes, I labored and I waited and I prayed to feel this truth. He who loved me, who gave himself for me, Right, So for him, faith was coming to believe, not that it happened in a general sense, not that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, he died, and he died for sinners, but that he gave himself for me, 
that he loved me, that on the cross he, 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 was, he did this for me. Into every day to wake up and to put that on like a robe. Right? Remember in that, in that beautiful story of the prodigal son, the prodigal comes home, the father takes off his robe, gives the son the robe of sonship to say it's just as though you'd never left the house. You're welcomed back into the house. You're back, welcomed back into the family. But the son every day, you know, I'm assuming, maybe he slept in the robe for the first couple of weeks, uh, but I'm guessing eventually he, he took it off. But every day that he put it back on, it would be a reminder. When he put the robe on, that God, the father loves me, that he made room for me back in his life. He made room for me back in his family. And that's what... Wesley learned. It's what, uh, it's what Luther remarks about, that we need to remind ourselves of it every single day, that this is the incredible good news by which a Christian lives his daily life. I love the way that Paul puts it at the end here. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We spend so much, so much of our energy, so much of our time trying to convince ourselves and others that we're good, that we're good enough, that we're, uh, that we're moral enough, that we're righteous enough, that we're fine. And yet Paul says, if that's true, if you're a good person, then Jesus died for nothing. Right? If you're good enough, then Jesus didn't have to die. This is the reason that Paul wakes up. It's the reason that he knows who he is, one who's dead and who's brought to new life in Christ. And finally, this is not only good news for us, this is really, really good news uh, for the entire world. This is good news for our city, it's good news for our neighborhood. I love this story. One day, uh, theologian Miroslav Volf, he's an Eastern European theologian, uh, and one of the leading public intellectuals uh, in the Christian tradition today, he's a teacher at Yale. Uh, he became friends with a man named Mark Gornick. Uh, Mark was uh, a Presbyterian, uh, PCA church planter, uh, so one, one of uh, somebody who had a lot in common, uh, actually, with us by theological convictions, and uh, the state the the state of his ministry was one a lot like ours. He planted a church called New Song Community Church in Sandtown, which is uh, one of the poorest and most dangerous neighborhoods of Baltimore. So it's one of the most dangerous neighborhoods and one of the most dangerous cities uh, in the U.S. And out of Gornick's labor there, a really vibrant neighborhood ministry and church had sprung up. And Wolf heard about it and went to go visit it. This uh, brilliant intellectual who'd given so much uh, to defending the faith. And so Gornick, as they were touring the ministry, as they're walking around Sandtown, this depressed neighborhood, says to Wolf, he says, he points out, he says that the most powerful and untapped resource for renewing neighborhoods like this one is the biblical doctrine of justification by faith. That what a neighborhood like this needs is the biblical doctrine of justification by faith. That's basically what we've just talked about. Wolf uh, was left scratching his bald head over this, uh, over this statement. He said that he lived in, at, at Yale at this Ivy League divinity school where most people looked at the doctrine of justification by faith as one that we had largely moved behind, moved beyond. They thought it was a kind of a fundamentalist doctrine thought that certainly for things like urban poverty and, the, and, and uh, cyclical poverty and the issues of race and poverty that afflict a neighborhood like this one, surely, uh, as Wolf put it, how could the dead streets receive life from a seemingly dead doctrine? But after thinking about it, he wrote this, and we'll close here. 
He says, imagine that you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color, and you have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens and in a thousand ways that society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You are a failure and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow which you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered and your soul enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count. Even more, that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything that you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now that this gospel is not simply proclaimed, but embodied in a community, in a church, justified, accepted by sheer grace. It seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by a society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine, furthermore, this community determined to infuse the wider culture, along with its political and economic institutions, with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. This is justification by grace, proclaimed and practiced. A dead doctrine? Hardly. Lord Jesus, would you make us into that kind of community? A community that lives in the midst of a world where people are measured by their achievements, by their earnings, by their outward appearances, as a, outward appearances of success. Would we be that kind of counterculture that loves, values, and affirms people sheerly on the basis of your grace? A place where what matters is Jesus. A place where all people belong around your table a place where we can find refuge and rest from the hamster wheel of the world that keeps us working to prove ourselves. Lord, may we be a place where we don't judge one another on the basis of the world's standards of worthiness or goodness, but where instead we treasure the unearned gift of your grace together, a place where we know ourselves to be who you declare us to be, your sons and daughters, beloved and accepted and delighted in, where we extend that grace to one another, where we extend that grace to our neighbors. Lord Jesus, help each and every one of us every day to put on that righteousness and to wear it like a robe, knowing that what's true of Christ is true of us, that we belong as children of the Father, perfectly righteous, perfectly beloved, perfectly accepted. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.